0: Good morning. The sermon today will be based on Ephesians chapter 6 verses 18 through 22. If you'd like to follow along, it can be found on page 1782 of the Pew Bible. The dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Thanks, Libby.
1: If you've been following along with our series in Ephesians, you know that this passage is out of order. We were just in the early early part of chapter 4, and now we're at the very end of the book. It's magic. <laughs> um, the reason for that is, is that we're going to start the fall series pretty soon, and that is going to carry us through the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6. This will be, it, the series will be called Be Made New because some people will come back to church in the fall, and we want to make it like sexy and fresh for them. But it's, we're just going to continue through Ephesians, focusing on the emphasis that's there, which is that God makes us new in Christ. And So it'll it'll have a nice new packaging, and you won't have to look at a pastel blue on the slides anymore. Okay, so um, I've been in church for a while now, and there are a number of, of different sorts of people who are actually passionate about God and Jesus and the gospel, but who are quite different from each other in their attitudes about what it means to be a Christian and what should be happening at church when they come. Um, for example, there are some folks that actually love the church part. They want to be here. They like being here. They like being at the church. They like being in- involved in church things. Like when you come to the feast tonight, they will have cooked something nice. Right? And more than just w- like what th- their kids will eat, you know what I mean, or something. And they like—they th- take a lot of pride in it. And they'll—like they'll, if you ask them to be on the finance committee, they'll be like, it's such an honor to be on the finance committee, you know, and like they, they really feel that way. And I love people like that, you know, and there are other people who don't feel that way. They want to come to church. They want to be given a good opportunity to worship God, and they want specific applications. Oh, i I'm sorry, I should be on a different side— specific applications about exactly how they can be a better Christian this week from Monday to Saturday. And they want the church to spend as much time of that as possible, as fast as possible, because— they're not gonna spend their week here. We're not gonna be at church all week. We're gonna be out there in the world, at our jobs, with our families, with our neighbors. And man, we need to get ready, and we need to get going, and we need to do the stuff. And I love people like that. I love people like that. And then there are some people who have very deep in their hearts, Jesus' statement that the mandate of making disciples of all nations is absolutely global. It is for all nations. It is for all people everywhere, at all times. And they are like, always frustrated with the church because it doesn't seem to get that. It doesn't seem to be passionate enough about it. It doesn't seem to be doing it. It doesn't seem to be interested in it. Like, why are you all not going to one of the tribes of Papua New Guinea right now? Like, it frustrates the heck out of them. And they're—sometimes they're angst, so they can't even hardly come to church, and they only want to be on the missions committee, and they don't know why 87% of our budget doesn't go to global missions, because look at us in America. Why should we pay for anything? All of us can do this stuff. We're just being lazy, right? I love people like that. (laughs) I love people like that. In fact, to one extent or another, I've been all three of those people. And at different moments, I'm more one than the other. And some of you may have moved between, and some of you may be annoyed by some of the people I've just described, and—and and yet, here's the thing. They're all the same in a way, and they're all different, right? They're all the same in that they all believe the bigger picture is important, and that everybody else isn't getting the big picture, right? Without a robust institution, in place where people can come together and unite with each other that's that is strong and good and where people are focused and things are nice and you feel good when you're there and there's real love without the church together being strong, like nothing else is going to happen. People aren't going to grow. No one's going anywhere. Everything's going to decline. It's true. Without robust institutions, all societies crumble. But the name of Jesus out in the city will be mainly affected by how each of us individually live Monday to Saturday, because most of the city's not going to come to church. They're just going to see us out at our jobs and stuff, right? And so in some sense, being ready to live Monday to Saturday—that is the big picture, right? And in another sense, If our mandate is global to make disciples of all nations, we are connected to the big picture precisely in proportion to which we are going to all nations. (laughs) That's the big picture, right? On some level, all three people are often divided from one another precisely because all three groups of people are profoundly interested in the big picture and are profoundly upset sometimes by the fact that other people don't seem to get it. And that's very normal for us as human beings because we naturally get focused on one thing, as the secret, and what's natural for Jesus is he often makes a number of things work together to create the larger synergy that he's interested in. Right? So one of the ways you could say this in relationship to the whole book of Ephesians, but specifically as it wraps up in these last few verses, is this. God builds the body of Christ with people fully committed to the global mission in the local church. So God builds the body of Christ. He does it. He's building the body of Christ everywhere, in their jobs, all week, all the people, everywhere. He does it with people. He does it with people who are fully committed to the global mission, who are willing to see the big picture, and who are in the local church covenantally. They realize that God wants to do things In the workplace, in the marketplace, in the city, with our neighbors, to fulfill his global mandate everywhere through the robust organism that is also an institution, which is called the local church. And you can see that in all of the assumptions, claims, and instructions in these verses, okay? So it—but here's the fun thing about this. Virtually none of the verses in this section are difficult to understand. So this whole sermon is going to be application, okay? So I've got 46 applications that we're going to go through, okay? I'm just kidding. There's only nine, but that doesn't sound like that many after 46, right? All right. So the, the first is just pray. It's the first application. Just pray! So he gets—he gets to the end of chapter 6. He, the, the, the verses before this are all about spiritual warfare that like are our struggle is not against flesh and blood. They're, 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 there's real—like we are in sort of something like a spiritual battle in which we have to actually bear spiritual armor, and like it's—it's it's not easy. It's actually difficult, and you have to take it very seriously. And so therefore, in light of all that, he's like, just like, just pray, man. And it's—it feels almost like a like a thought where he's, he's just kind of like, just do it. Just do it all, all all the time in all kinds of different ways. Like whatever comes to you is just fine, right? He's, so he says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of requests and prayers." Okay, so think about what he's saying. He's saying, okay, first be a Christian and be in the frame of the spiritual interests of God, hopefully in line with the Holy Spirit who is in you. Okay, now once you get that straight, just open your mouth and start talking with some reverence and passion. Okay, just like you don't really have to— He's like, listen, pray in the Spirit, how often? Like just all the time, like on every occasion. Like every time you get together, no matter what's happening, just like, it's a good time to pray. Just go ahead and do it, man. And then he says, with all kinds of prayers and requests, right? Which is a problem if you think everybody should pray like a particular way. Because he's like, all kinds of prayers. Like just pray all kinds of prayers. They could be emotional prayers. They can be theologically structured prayers. They could be short prayers. They could be long prayers, as long as they're not like stupid long. You know, like they could be all, I mean, just it doesn't, you don't don't get all hung up on Getting it all right. Like, pray about anything you want, basically any way you want, as long as your frame is in the Spirit. As long as you're submitted to, this, to Jesus and to His Spirit, just go for it, man. I can't tell you how many people I've been around, especially like repressed Midwesterners a little bit, and it's like, let's pray, and they're like, I don't know what I would say. I don't know what I would pray about. And the answer is anything, anytime, anywhere, with any words. Just go for it. Just pray, right? Okay, enough on that. Second is, just pray wider. Right? He says, with this in mind, meaning all that spiritual warfare, that things are tough, man. Like, I don't know if you've been paying attention. It has not been a good year for spiritual leaders. I'll get to that in a minute. But like Christians, it's—man, it's tough. It's not easy. It's never been easy. Okay, listen. I, I, I like, especially I see younger people struggling with this. Like, parents are like, my kids, they just— It's like they fight so hard for them to take Jesus seriously, to submit to Jesus, and to believe in him, and to follow him. Of course it is. Of of course it is. Following Jesus is to follow the beautiful into the good, and to do what's honorable, and what you're made for has nothing to do with like doing whatever you want. Of course it's easy to do whatever you want. Of course your kids, just like you, want to do whatever you want. You want to say whatever you want. You want to hate whoever you want. You want to not forgive whatever you want. You want to be resentful towards whoever you want. You want to spend your time however you want. You want to eat whatever you want. You want to have sex with whoever you want. You want to do whatever you want. And you want to do what everybody's pressuring you to do. You want to hate whoever, everybody's pressuring you to hate. You want to resent whoever everybody's pressuring you to resent. You want to watch whatever people are pressuring you to watch. Of course you do! That's why the verses before this talks about the following Christ like a battle on which you have to wear armor, on which you have the menta- have to have the mentality of a warrior. Seeking the good in Christ as his own in a worldly world in which the flesh is in you too. It's a fight, man. It is a war. And you have to have that kind of mentality. Right? And so With that in mind, how often should you pray? Always, and then he says, and keep on praying for all the saints or all God's people. Meaning this, don't just pray for yourself. And don't just pray just for your church. Because what happens to all the saints is going to matter to you. And it does matter to you and for you. And of course it matters to them even more. It just, it matters It matters what happens in the church in the Dominican Republic. It matters how these floods in Kerala affect the most Christian state in India, and how that state can mobilize people to work for the gospel in all the other states of India. It matters whether or not Uyghur Muslims are being re-educated in Chinese concentration camps so that no Christian missionary can speak to them, and so that their humanity, their capacity to be what they were meant to be, is being utterly destroyed. Like, these things matter. They matter profoundly. And what Paul is saying is he's like, you got pr- to pray wider because, listen, the only two— th- there's only two things you're going to care about besides yourself. What you give money to and what you pray for. That's it. We're just not very caring people. Well, creatures. <laughs> in the condition that we're in, subject to the activities of the flesh— Naturally given to a narrow view because we're limited human beings with very few experiences. We're naturally not going to be very open minded. We're not going to be very interested in things any distance from us. And so the only thing that we're going to care about, except for what's immediately in front of us, is what we give our money to because we dang, we care about that, and what we pray about. So he says, just start by praying and then knowing what it's like pray wider. And when you, when you start with this, you can just start by praying for like everyone. God, please bless everyone. Like that's how like a five-year-old would pray. You can pray like that too. There's nothing wrong with that. You don't be like, how can one prayer count for like seven billion people? Well, listen, I don't know. I don't know how God counts any prayer. I don't even know why there should be such a thing as prayer for the God who knows what he wants to do and will do as he pleases. But God has chosen to create prayer as a thing in which he dynamically interacts with, even in his sovereignty, in a way that is real. He tells us that it's real. He tells us that it's important. He tells us how it works. And that he doesn't explain the cosmic metaphysics of it. You can just trust him that he listens. Like, I don't need to know how my phone works. To know that if I push my little like sunflower button that gets, calls my wife, that she's going to be at the other end and she's going to listen to how I talk. I trust her. She's going to do that. I don't have to know all the dynamics of it. Right? The New Testament knows nothing of a Christian life that doesn't have prayer in it. And it, that's not to be like, because that means if you don't pray, you're a, you're a really bad Christian. Okay? You know what I always say to that, right? Of course you're a bad Christian. Like everybody's a bad Christian. Like, you take—it's like taking you in like— Like imagine, like imagine flipping through an Instagram where everything was Jesus being awesome, right? It would make you feel as bad about yourself as a 13-year-old girl who looks at a bunch of pictures of models, right? Nobody's a good Christian compared to Jesus, except he's real. That's not the point. The point is, is that, like, how much can we become like Jesus? And what must we realize about the truth about Jesus so that we would pray, like, that life is a spiritual battle and that prayer is the action of vigilance. Right? To not pray doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. To not pray means you don't think you're really fighting anything. You don't, you're not concerned that you have adversarial things in your life, whether in your own character, or whether in temptations, or devils, or whatever. Prayer is in one sense a belief that God is there and cares. But in some ways, secondly, it's a a belief in humility that you can't do it all yourself. And thirdly, it is a belief in the necessity of vigilance. Right? When Paul gets to this point and he's, he's trying to teach people to be vigilant as warriors in the faith, he says, therefore, action number one is what? Pray. Does that make sense? Remember, Don't get in your head some crazy religious person who prays for 70 hours, okay? Not everybody who prays for 70 hours is crazy, okay? I'm just saying you probably have— like right now, some devil or some thing in your flesh is putting in your mind an ugly picture of prayer to dismantle the biblical good I'm saying about it, right? What I'm telling you is the apostle has already said none of that matters. He's just said— just pray. Just in the Spirit, pray. All kinds of prayers, all kinds of occasions, all kinds of words. Say all kinds of stuff. Say it to God in the Spirit. Say whatever you think is right. Do the best you can. That's the kind of prayer we're talking about. Okay? That's the kind of prayer we're talking about. And do that. And do it wider. Okay? All right. The third thing is—there's only 42 of these. Okay. The third is pray for leaders. Pray for leaders. We spent last week talking about Ephesians chapter 4, where there's a pretty strong emphasis on um, these this group of five itinerant leadership offices that are meant to bind the church together in unity and build it towards its maturity so that the church can build itself up, right? And so these people are strategic in that sense. They're not better than anybody else. In some ways, they're not more important, but in some ways, they're more strategic. Does that make sense? So like one of the things that the British army hated about the— the rebel American army in the American Revolution is because in British warfare, it was considered civilized never to shoot at officers. Right? In European combat, officers had specific uniforms, and you weren't supposed to shoot at them. That. that was considered uncivilized. You killed all the other people, and then whoever won the battle won the battle. The Americans aimed specifically at the officers. In fact, there were volleys where, like, the officers, like, fire, and, in like, the, the main officer would get hit eight times. And like almost no one else would get hit. And like, because they were all keying on the officers because they knew the British Army, if they killed the officers, they'd scatter all the people because they were so dependent on the discipline directed by the officers and everything done in battle was directed by the officers. That's how British warfare went. And so the Americans just killed all the officers. And like, you know, Cornwallis was like incensed. He's like, how dare you? You know, clutching his pearls. And like, like who wouldn't do that? Like, you're a bunch of scrappy, like, hunters who, like, live in log cabins. You're fighting the most powerful army in the world who's recruiting mercenaries from Germany. Like, how do you think you're going to fight the war? you would be like, wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. I know we're British. I know what we normally do, but what if we shot all the officers? You know? It's strategic. Right? And so, like, Christian leaders, they're better— Oftentimes they're not more god—they're not hardly ever more godly than everybody else in the church. But they're strategic spiritually to the church being part of something bigger. To you being part of something bigger. They connect you with that bigger. They're the connecting points between churches, within the church. And they're, they're placed in a place where they're strategic in the church being healthy and maturity and unity, and the local church being part of something bigger. And because of that, because of the place they are strategically, the attack against them is more in every way. There are some more temptations of the flesh because you're in positions of power. You have access to people that that um, you wouldn't normally have. There are there are things that that leadership does. It tires you the heck out. It stresses you the heck out, and then it gives you opportunities for sin you wouldn't have otherwise. It's difficult. It's difficult. And if you're in a, what looks like a hel- relatively healthy spiritual place, people aren't really watching you, and they feel morally loyal to you, and they don't know to stop being loyal to you until it's too late. Right? And so it's really, it's, it's honestly very difficult to be a Christian leader. Less than 50% of people who start out as pastors will end their career as pastors. Now some percentage of that is just they never should have gotten a ministry in the first place, you know? There was a survey about 12 or 15 years ago with pastor's wives, and 80% of the pastor's wives surveyed said that they wish that their husbands did something else. At which point, I said this in, in the presence of Marcus Allen, the pastor of um, of Mount Zion Baptist Church, he was like, I can't believe it's that low. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a lot of pastor's wives who like, were are like, look, if I got to pick what my husband did, I would not have picked this calling, but I think he has this calling, and I, and I like, I bless God that he's, he's called me into something meaningful. Like, I'm not against it, but like, yeah, I, like, I wish he did something else. Some of them are like that. Some of them are like, I would like to burn the church down. Some of them feel like that. Like, it's different, right? But, but this is what it's like sometimes for these Christian leaders. And the church should kind of know that, that like, you have to hold us accountable. There's there, there are things where you just can't let leaders do whatever they want. But at the same time, you have to recognize that the calling is difficult. And so you have to—it's almost like, it's a little bit like parenting a teenager. You have to be hard on them and very supportive at the same time. You know what I mean? But one of the things that you have to do, you should do, and you don't have any right to criticize them if you're not doing it. You might not have any right to criticize them while you are anyway, but let's just start with what we have. You've got to start with praying for them. Because they'll get eight bullets for every one of yours. You know what I mean? And I've been in it 20 years now, and I've—and I've not been, I've been in ministry before, too. And it is a lot harder on some of these things to grow in godliness, to be spiritually vibrant, to care about the people in front of you, to do all the things in their proper proportion, to lead and teach and counsel and love, and remember that your mother died two years ago, and to think about the—like, it's—it's a lot. And you should start with just praying for those in leadership. Does that make sense? Now, I got to say, I'm going to take this two steps farther. What do you pray for them about? Okay? So, A, pray for, pray for all the Christian leaders, especially those directly involved in your life. Two, pray especially for those whose job it is to proclaim the mystery of the gospel of Christ. People who have to preach and teach, right? Paul says, pray especially for me that I, whenever I open my mouth, God would give me words to speak the unsearchable mysteries of Christ. That's not easy. To do. And then thirdly, the thing he asked for them to pray for twice is that when he speaks, he would do it fearlessly. I don't know if you've noticed, but over the last few years, I have more and more talked about the Christian virtue of courage. Debbie talked about it today as she was singing. And I have talked about it more and more because I don't think you can have love without courage. I think that Lewis talked about this. C.S. Lewis talked about this. That, that that love is the ideal, and courage is the motivational virtue that makes it possible. Love is the hardest thing in the world. It's all the virtues in proper proportion, in full vitality, working together, rightly according to the truth. It's not easy at all. And then, knowing what it is, the minute you know what it is, it's terrifying to think that you could actually try to do it, right? And so it requires an enormous amount of courage, and so he says, listen, When I step up, when my calling is to preach the gospel, the number one thing I want you to pray about, one is that, one is that I'd have words to speak, that God would give me words to say. And two is, even though I'm in chains and they could kill me whenever they want, I don't care about that. What I care about is pray for me that I would have the courage to always and in every place declare it fearlessly. He wanted you to pray for courage. Do you know what happens when you pray for a spiritual leader that proclaims the gospel to have courage? Right? One, God grants courage. And two, you have to contemplate in the state of prayer your own courageousness or lack thereof. Which could lead you then to pray for yourself, what you just prayed for that leader, that he would give you words to say in key moments, and that he would give you the courage to live, and in some cases proclaim the truth, fearlessly as you should and must. Okay, let's move on. The, uh, the second section of applications is giving and receiving leaders. One of the things that's very evident in a church that believes it's part of something bigger is that it gives and receives leaders. Leaders move in and out to nourish the church and to go and nourish other churches. So for example, it says this, Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant of the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you might know how we are and that he may encourage you. In fact, in almost every epistle of the Apostle Paul, it is either to one of these second-tier leaders or 2nd cheerleaders, leaders or through one of them. His epistle to the Colossians and to the Laodiceans comes through Epaphras. Some of the epistles are, are to and through such leaders like Titus and 1st and 2nd Timothy. Right? When he sends the Corinthians correspondence to Corinth, he sends Timothy. Later, he sends Titus. In 2 Corinthians, he said we were in prison and we were so in despairing that we lost all hope of surviving, except for the Lord met us in that, a a few verses later, he says, with the coming of Titus. Right? If you move on, um, I'll say that just in a second when we get to the next point. Um, Now, in the book of Revelation, in the first few chapters, there are seven letters to seven churches. One of them is to the church at Ephesus, which the book of Ephesians is written to, right? This is a little bit later probably than this book is written. He says, this is Jesus' words prophetically to the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Do you see this sort of military, this sort of like it's a fight kind of metaphor there? But you'll notice that one of the things is not It is not necessarily a virtue to just receive every leader and let them do whatever they want, right? In this, in this passage, the Apostle John tells them through the revelation of the words of Jesus himself, listen, one of the things that's great about you, church Ephesus, is some people have come to you as leaders, and you didn't receive them, and you shouldn't have. Does that make sense? Now, let's look at a couple things of this. So one is to receive what you might call a second chair leader. Like, not the main person you're used to, or not the person you like the best. What is critical to any church that is growing, to a Christian that is growing spiritually, and to a church that is part of something bigger is, it is a church that gladly and freely receives other leaders than the point or planting leader of that church or movement. Does that make sense? Namely, that they receive the leaders that that leader sends to them, but also they're willing to receive other leaders to support and help them grow, though they're also engaging in reasonable and godly and humble discernment as to whether or not they should, right? Because the church of Ephesus received Tychicus. They received Priscilla and Aquila. They received Timothy, right? They received a number of leaders Paul sent to them. And yet, Jesus could say in Revelation, there were some people who came to you that you discerned and you did not receive, and that was good. Does that make sense? So In that sense, what that requires is for Christians to develop a, a spiritual theology of loyalty. And for some of you who are, are maybe from uh, like a sort of abusive and controlling families, or you have come through abusive and controlling churches with very authoritarian leadership, just me saying that, the word loyalty can like make your skin crawl, okay? But it's a little bit like um, honesty when you knew somebody who was a really good liar and always saying that they were honest. You know, it's really not the word that's the problem. It's your experience, and how that experience has affected you emotionally. Loyalty is an extremely important, very virtuous, and wholesome human virtue. Knowing when you should be bound in solidarity closely with another person in order to accomplish something, and in in order to support each other. Right? And in such cases when you give support to someone else, oftentimes because they're doing work to help and protect you, right? One of the reasons you're supposed to obey your parents and honor your father and mother, especially when you're in their home, is because they're spending their whole life protecting and providing for you. Right? You are supposed to be loyal to them because they're pre- protecting, providing for, and helping, and helping grow you. Right? Similarly, that's what Jesus is doing for us. That's what he calls our spiritual leaders to do for us. Does that make sense? That does not mean we give unthinking loyalty to anyone. So I define it like this. Spiritual loyalty doesn't mean exclusivity. It means embracing the person your teacher sends you with reasonable discernment. Right? So, for example, it—let's say—let's—I'll use me as an example because I'm the senior pastor of this church right now, just until we find somebody better. Okay? Um, Let's say you came to faith in this church, and you grew up in Christ in this church. You've been here five or six years, and you're like, man, this church has changed my life. I love Nick. He's so great. You'd be right to say that, right? I'm just, I'm just <laughs> But you might, because of that, feel a natural loyalty to me as a pastor, okay? Now there's some issues with that. What's going to happen if, like, you find out that, like, I have three women on the side? Right? What, what do you do? How's that going to affect you? Right? You see, if you have the wrong kind of loyalty, you'll have tied my godliness up to your faith— and if you find that out, then you'll probably lose your faith, right? If, if, you, if I have led you and you've taken from me, but you have the a right definition of loyalty, if I fall, you'll say, it's a war. People are casualties all the time. Drag Nick to the sick bay. Let's see if we can save his life, and I will step up into that officer position myself. That's, that's the real attitude. That's the real attitude of loyalty, right? It's a war. I'm not mad at Joshua Harris or Bill Heibels. I'm not mad at them. Like, yeah, they did crappy stuff, and they should be removed from the positions that they were in. And a certain amount of like, oh my gosh, is reasonable. But drag them to the sick bay, see if we can save them, and then somebody stand up and take their place of leadership. Right? Instead of being like, oh, I hate those people, burn that place down, which is the attitude a lot of people have. When leaders are shown to be untrustworthy because they failed, we forget that the people that we follow are referred to in Second Corinthians as jars of clay. I'm just—we're just as brittle as everybody else. I don't have women on the side, by the way. You wouldn't either if you had a wife like mine who's amazing and uses firearms accurately. Okay. Um, <laughs> what it—what it also means is that you are willing to embrace people that I send you, right? It could be something as simple as, like, you need counseling for something, and I say, hey, Why don't you talk to Lloyd? Or why don't you talk to Mike? Or why don't you talk to this counselor that you don't take immediate offense? Like, sometimes people have to be sent to make it all work, right? Sometimes it's as simple as like, listen, I'm going to India for two months. Like, what would you do if I was like, listen, I'm going to India for two months. I want you to come to church every week and give the exact same amount of dollars that you're giving right now, and I want you to serve more, not less, while I'm gone, even if you really like my sermons, right? What would you do? Would you take a couple Sundays off? What would you do? Really? What would you really do? Right? That's an issue that says something about who you are and what you really think about leaders and how you relate to them. Right? And so part of it is we have to be a people that are willing to receive other leaders than the, the main one we like. Like, that's the main theme of the first three chapters of First Corinthians, right? Paul's writing these people. They're all arrogant. They're like, we look, You know, Apollos preaches better than you, Paul. Did you know that? He's so good. Right? And he's like— I taught him. I mean, like you, you imagine, Paul's like I taught him everything he knows. Like what the heck is going on? But Apollos was more charismatic than Paul, and so people like listening to him more. He was just, just cooler, you know. And he's like, look, you guys, it doesn't matter. This isn't about whether I'm the best or he's the best. Look, I planted the seeds. He's watering the seeds. God makes it grow. Who cares? I sent Apollos to you. We're not in a competition, right? That's how any growing church, any healthy church, any church that knows that it's part of something bigger feels about leadership. Does that make sense? Okay, let's keep moving because we got a lot more to get to. I'm just kidding. All right, the second is sharing your best people and assets. This can be harder. What are you gonna do the day I tell you I'm not gonna be here anymore? I have no plans. Nobody ever calls me to try to recruit me. It's one of the great graces of my life. I've been hired by two churches in America. Both times it was the only church in America that wanted to hire me. I've never been called to be offered another job. Okay? So we literally are gonna have to find somebody better to get rid of me. Okay? That's a real thing. So you should be looking. Okay? So, um, but what are you gonna do when that day comes? Is our attendance gonna go from 700 adults to 300? Or to 620? Or to, what's gonna happen? What's gonna happen if, if Mike leaves and he's your favorite? Or Lloyd? What's gonna happen? Now, it's one thing if we send Lloyd out or we send Vince out across town. We say, look, if you love that person, go with them. It's a new work. God bless you. We're in unity with each other. We're a church that's part of something bigger. Well, then it's a virtue to go, right? But if if not, it's a problem, right? Or like what happens if like we have a really good staff member and I tell you they're leaving, because they're going to go do something more strategic in the kingdom of God. Right? Like, Manohar's going to leave in the next year and a half, probably. I mean, that was the plan all along. His ministry's going to grow, and he's going to do that full time, and we're not going to have him here. And some of you are like, he speaks with a kind of a thick accent. I don't care. No, but listen, there's a lot of people who take a lot of comfort that he's here. A, he's the most theologically educated person in the whole church. You may not know that. Secondly, like, There's some people that like that there's an Indian guy on staff, like he understands a lot of stuff a lot of people don't understand. He also understands poverty, like almost nobody on our staff understands it. He understands like politics interacting in terms of missions in lots of places in the world that almost none of us understand the way he understands it. He's an enormous asset, right? He's not going to stay here. Vince was never going to stay here. John Sekutowski at some point is going to go. He's going to leave. I mean, I'm surprised, like Lloyd has put up with me this long. At some point, he's going to do some new ministry, right? These things are going to happen. What are you going to do? What are we going to do? What we should do is celebrate. We should cheer. We should give them money. We should be thrilled, right? If we think it's happening for the right reason, for good and healthy reasons, right? Because churches that know that they're part of something bigger are happy to let their people go. How do you think Timothy's mother and grandmother felt when the apostle Paul came to his hometown and said, I want, he, you know, he, he plants a church. They love Paul. Things are going great. They love Jesus. They're saved. Like their whole life has changed. And then one day, Paul walks up to Timothy's mother and grandmother and says, Listen, I know Timothy is your whole world. I know you've raised him since he was like a tiny baby, right? You're holding him in church when he's a little kid, and you've taught him the scriptures since he was the tiniest little thing, and there's no men around your family. I need him. I need him. There's so few men of his character that know the scriptures, that are young, and they have a constitution where they're not going to die at sea, and like he, there's something special about him. I know God will use him if you let him come with me. You may never see him again. You probably will never see him again. Or if you see him, it'll be for a few days. Are you guys willing to give him to me for this ministry? And they let him go. Can you imagine that? And when, it's, when he says, and when Paul writes to Timothy years later and says, your mother and your grandmother taught you the scriptures, it's probably not because his dad wouldn't, right? Or maybe it is. Maybe it's because his dad was a Greek. He wasn't a believer. Maybe that's possible. But it may just be that he had died, and like, these women were left by themselves into the care of the church, and Timothy went to do this stuff. And that, as, you, as you go through the Bible, this is true of a lot of different people. Like, in Acts 20, it says, as Paul was going along, there were a bunch of people with him. Like, do you even know who Aristarchus is? Who is Aristarchus? His name shows up like three or four times in the Bible. But either in Ephesians or somewhere else—I can't remember exactly where now— Paul talks about him as his fellow prisoner. Like he was one of the guys who rotted in jail with Paul. It's a big deal. He's probably an incredibly godly guy. Probably could have been the senior pastor where he was from. Right? But instead, he sat in prison with Paul. Kept him company. Kept him on track. They prayed together. It's good stuff. He may have even written one of the, one of the epistles, and you don't even know it. Because, you know, Paul had too much arthritis in one hand, or he was going more blind than we like to think. And so Paul dictates it to him, and he writes it down. You wouldn't even have, who knows, Colossians if it wasn't for him. You don't know. And nobody knows these people, and they're incredibly critical. There is no such thing as what we think of as the ministry of the Apostle Paul without like 20 of these people. If you go through the New Testament, you look at all the people who were with the Apostle Paul, there's like 20 of them. And that's just the people who are mentioned. There's probably way more than that. Does that make sense? All right. So we as a people have to be ready to let some of our best go and do more strategic things. They may—and they may be your children that you wish were going to live down the street from you. And they won't. It's worth it. So the third category here, and there's a couple in this one, is you have to learn how to embrace the big and small of the local church as part of the bigger vision. So Jesus wanted to create a worldwide movement. Out of like a couple hundred disciples, he picked 12, and he focused on this small group. And yet he created a global movement. There's something about the fact that Jesus creates big things through little things. Okay, if you realize that, if you understand that, then he makes big things through little things, then you can understand how the local church, the small community of real people that you're frustrated with, like this small group of people is one of the things he creates bigger things through. And part of the reason for that is is that Jesus does things right, and so it's always better before bigger, to quote Andy Stanley, right? He wants the thing to be right, true, whole, like a seed, right? If the seed is right, it can grow an oak tree. If the seed is wrong, it dies immediately, even if it's a bigger seed, right? And that's how Jesus does stuff, and so he does things big things through little healthy spiritually vibrant things, right? So here's a couple things about this. One is we have to do this work especially across the dividing walls of hostility, right? Ephesians 2 and 3. Right? That's a theme. It's part of what Paul calls the mystery of the gospel that he says he's preaching in these verses. That if we want to be a church that's that's part of something bigger, we have to try to do it across the dividing walls of hostility. Well, how do we even learn to do that? How do we learn to care about that? How do we even learn who would be good at that? How do we do any of that stuff? And the answer is, well, we do it here, in this room, literally in this local church. A multicultural church can plant a multicultural movement. A monocultural church has a lot harder time doing that. Right? So how did God— create or unleash a ministry to all the different peoples among the Gentiles. Well, he did it through not the church at Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem was almost certainly the largest church in the world at the time. It had like 11 of the 12 apostles. It was incredibly well led. It was well led by very godly people who are very strong in their faith, who knew the Bible's better than anybody else, right? So clearly it would have been that, but it wasn't. That's not the church he picked. He He picked a church that had zero apostles in a place called Antioch. Why would he do that? Right? That's really weird. But if you actually read in Acts 13, the, the um, description of the Church of Antioch, it describes the different leaders and it leaves in descriptions about their ethnicity, their cultural and linguistic backgrounds, and, and it's just enough to know that it was a very ethnically and linguistically diverse church leadership. Antioch was a city that had walls all the way through the cities to put different ethnicities in different ghettos, so they wouldn't have wars with each other. But in the Christian church in Antioch, there was a multicultural church of many nations, which means you got lots of people to lots of different nations to send out, which is how a lot of this works. But also it was a church that understood deeply in its bones that the gospel was for all people. And so God could find people there that knew that the gospel was for all people, and he did. Barnabas and Paul to start with, right? Many of the things that we would like to be part of that are bigger than ourselves, we can only be the seed of if we do them the hard way, the right way, the loving way right here among ourselves. If we don't do it with each other, do that with each other, love each other in that way, we will have an ideology of the thing, which is probably wrong— deeply shallow, and substitutes intellectualism for intelligence. We'll spend a lot of money doing it. It'll be a complete failure, and the people that we try to do it to will feel like we're condescending prigs. There's a G at the end there, not a K, so don't get upset. Only if we do the loving thing here, whatever it is we want to spread, whether it's Christian schooling, or multi-ethnic ministry, or receiving and sending out refugees or people of of other nationalities, whatever it is, right? Being part of reaching more Latinos in America. Like there's all kinds of things God has created opportunities for us to be part of. And that we could be part of something bigger, and it could be very exciting. We are probably not going to be part of it. We're not going to care enough, and we're not going to do the right thing unless we are literally doing it on a tiny level right here to make the seed healthy before we plant it to become the tree. Do you understand? And so you can't just be like, well, I like, I like black people. They should have really good black churches. I mean, you can think, you can be like, hey listen, if black people want to go to black churches, God bless them, right? They, you know, especially in Wisconsin, they're a minority all week at work. And if they want to go to black church on Sunday, God bless them. But we're not going to try to make our church anything but as maximally welcoming to black people as we possibly can. Right? It's the only way you can be, you can have anything to say. You can even participate in relationships with anybody. Same thing with, with, with deaf people. Like we have with the signing ministry, one thing, and there's a deaf church that we're interacting with. There's—I mean, I don't even know what to call that stuff. Everything I say is offensive and wrong, right? It's only by interacting with Linda and some of the folks at that church that I'm starting to know, like, what they even want, why people who are hard of hearing or deaf are so unreached. Less than 2% of them believe in Jesus. I don't even know where to start. All I do know is there was only one church that had a deaf ministry in the entire Dane County region. That pastor just left. So there's none. The paltry thing that we do for deaf people is the only thing I know of in Dane County that exists for deaf people to be able to engage in a worship service with Jesus and his worshipers. Which motivates me to want to do something, but I better do it here before I think we can do it in Dane County. Does that make sense? Let's move on then. Seventh is you need to give generously through your local church. Okay, listen. I don't like to talk about money. You don't like to hear about money. Right? Some of you are like, oh, churches are always talking about money. Listen, there's a fine line between me not talking about money so I don't live up to your stereotypes that churches always talk about money, and me not being fearless and courageous in preaching the gospel in relationship to one of our biggest idols and one of our greatest assets for being part of the global mission. Okay, so here's 20 seconds on it, okay? I hope you can handle it. Um, We are called to give generously, very generously, to the work of the ministry through the local church, okay? Um, I—in our church survey, sometimes people will say stuff like, um, I don't give it a high point. You guys don't need it. Um, but I give. You don't need to know anything about that, which is fine. Listen. Listen, I'm as bucking of authority as the next guy. Like, I don't think the government does anything well, and I don't like paying my taxes, though I pay every penny of them, okay? However, where your heart—where your money is is where your heart is going to be. Okay. That's where your heart's going to be. Both to what you give your money and through which you give your money. All of the money we know of given in the New Testament is given through the local church, in its gathered ministry, to a second chair leader, to be taken to another church in ministry under the authority of an apostle. That's, that's the only thing we know about. Now, that does not mean that giving to a missionary is wrong. However, in my Christian life, I have never allowed in my whole household for less than 80% of what we totally give charitably to Christian ministries to not be given directly through my local church, no matter how much I disliked the way money was handled at the local church. Unless I thought it was, it was um, practicably unethical, meaning that they were doing something that was an accounting like crime, okay? <clears throat> I actually, I was part of a number of churches before I led any churches. I never thought their mission program was good enough. I never thought that their ministries were good enough. I always thought I knew somebody who was gonna go do a different ministry better on the mission field or in a parachurch ministry. I always thought that. But I believe, principally speaking, God wanted me to give my money into and through the local church, even to missions, for the most part, And I believe that that's for a couple of reasons. One is I believe that he wants us to argue with each other about how we should invest his money, right? Secondly, almost none of us are as good uh, as good an investor spiritually as we think we are, right? Everybody who's raising money to go to missions or to do a parachurch thing or whatever they're doing is excited about it. They've worked really hard on their pitch. They have a great elevator pitch. They have a good 20-minute pitch. They're really good at setting up appointments. They're all good at that. How do you really discern who's trained, who's served over a while, who's put in the time, who, who knows how to do this stuff, who won't fold on the mission field? Because the number one thing that makes missionaries um, ineffective is they get there and they just kind of stop working. They just, they don't do the fearless thing. They do other things and things that aren't particularly effective. And then after a while, sometimes they come home. Sometimes they just stay there permanently. That's the number one, number one biggest issue with missionaries. And you would never know. And it's almost impossible to, like, figure out what they're doing while you're home. Be like, well, I have you, like, I want a number of how many people you share the gospel with. It's really hard to do. Our mission team has struggled with it. How do you even do that? It's almost impossible. What you do is you get back on the front end of the thing, and you say to somebody in your church who wants to go somewhere as a missionary, are you interacting with that nationality here in Madison? Have you shared the gospel with them? What are you doing with the blah, blah, blah? Do you have any—have you led a small group successfully? Right? I'm, I, sometimes I've been surprised at people at high, at high Point who have money and they give to people who say, hey, will you give me a monthly support? Who are out of High Point, who are raising support, and they never ask anybody in leadership, should I commit for 15, 20, 30 years to this person to give them money every single month? Are they of the right character? Are they have the right training? The right capacity? They don't even ask us. And we've been pastoring them for a couple of years sometimes. I always, I'm really surprised by that. Also, if you give through your local church, you'll not just be more interested in your church, you'll be more interested in things in your church you weren't interested in. Like, who's on the missions team? (laughs) Who is, who is engaged in the oversight of the nearly $200,000 we give to missions every year? What's in our budget as a local church? What happens at congregational meetings? Who are our elders who make all these decisions, right? Like the minute you start giving through your local church, You start caring about things like governance and financial practices, stuff you'd never care about if you didn't give through your local church. Because Jesus said, listen man, you give your money to something, you'll start caring about it. And you'll start caring about some details and specific details to those things. And also we can labor with each other about how to best spend God's money and how to invest it. Does that make sense? And so I want to encourage, I want to encourage you that wherever you go, whatever church you're a part of, no matter how frustrated you are with what's going on. If you can't put your money into that church, you shouldn't be there. Okay? Because you don't care about it. And so you should go to another church, or you should get a different job and move to another city if necessary, or you should be part of a church plant, or do something. Do something you can believe in, because if you can't give your money to something, you don't care about it. Does that make sense? I'm going to move on from that. This is the last one. Okay. And that is, is that we're supposed to be bonded and gracious to everybody who loves Jesus with an undying love. That's how the Apostle Paul ends the epistle. He says, peace to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that is, that is the boundaries of, not the boundaries of our affections, but that is the scope of our Christian affection. People who love Jesus with an undying love. Persevering faith and devotion to Jesus. Right? You see, you start thinking in those terms, and the African Methodist Episcopal church down the street, you don't really have to know whether they do communion by intinction. The question is, are there people who make up the vibrant center of that church who love Jesus with an undying love? Latino churches, let me here, We don't necessarily have to know it. Read every transcript and translation. It's important to have some oversight on certain things, but the main issue is do they love Jesus with an undying love, right? Because to those people, anybody who fits that, the Apostle Paul says, let peace be on them from God. Let there be, let there be love and the gift of faith from God to them. And may there be all grace, all generosity, and favorable thought and feeling toward them, right? To be love. And every church and every Christian that knows that they're part of something bigger, he just feels that way. That's the, that's the feel of it. That's the feeling we're meant to have. Does that make sense? <clears throat> One of the things that kind of haunts me about the letter to the Ephesians is it's one of the greatest spiritual encouragements from a pastor ever in the history of the world. It's so tight. It's so complete. It covers basically everything. And when you get to the book of Revelation, after the bit I read you before where it says, you've tested people and found them false. You've persevered and endured hardships for my name. You've not grown weary. The next line I did not include earlier in the sermon was this, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Now, that might be a mistranslation. You've lost your first love. Because it can either mean you've forgotten your first love. That is the one you loved first. That is Jesus. Or it can mean the love you had at first. Meaning, when you came to love Jesus with an undying love, it produced in you a love for others, and a sacrifice for others, so that you would do all kinds of sacrificial and meaningful things for each other, right? See how he says, repent and do the things you did at first. Now, you could just be like, well, it just probably means both, and it probably does mean both. When you love that first love ardently, there are things you naturally do which are deeply loving and sacrificial that happen right away. And ultimately, for all the work, for all the discernment, for all the theology, for all the structure, for all the understanding of the gospel that existed at the church of Ephesus, right, for all that they held to the mystery of the gospel. Over time, something got narrowed. They stopped really giving their hearts fully to something bigger than themselves. They got, they got, they got smushed in. The flesh kind of took hold again of certain things, and they they were putting their hope in in things that were not laying their lives down for the one who died for them. In some ways, the pursuit of vibrant, effervescent, sacrificial, demeanor-expressing love is the mark of a church that believes it's part of something bigger. And if the book of Ephesians is any sense of how to get there, it is to understand and know more and more deeply the mystery of the gospel. That what we are meant to do is only ever response to what Christ has done. He wanted to be part of something bigger. And he didn't need to be. There's, there's In some ways, there's nothing bigger than being part of the triune godhead, right? But he wanted to do some other things. He wanted to—he wanted to— be part of our salvation, he did something. His love flowed out of him. His grace, his generosity came to us in a million different ways. And he, he is the preeminent example of how one would behave if they, if their loves were perfectly ordered. If their, the first love on their mind was to obey the Father and to redeem his image bearers.
0: And in that way, you and
1: I are called and invited to be just like Jesus to be just like God, to love the Father, and to be entirely devoted to the redemption of his image bearers everywhere in the world, starting with the people right in front of you.
0: Let's
1: pray for that. Lord, um, we pray that you would come right now in the person of your Holy Spirit, and that you would both convict and encourage us toward what we were made for, knowing that we were made for the transcendent and the sublime, we, that our hearts long for something and someone bigger than us to be lost into and find ourselves in. Father, please help us to overcome the clingingness we naturally have to the world and to smaller things because of our fears and our insecurities. And help us to, again, put our trust in you, our first love. And for you, our first love, to re-invoke in us the love we had at first. And for the first thing for it to produce in us to be prayer. All kinds of prayer all the time and all kinds of words. Broader than we've ever prayed for the leaders that you've given us. God, help us to be people humble enough and willing enough to receive who you send us, that we will receive with discernment whatever leaders you send us, and that we'd be willing to give away whatever leaders you want us to send. And God, please help us to be people who understand the big and the small, that everything big you want to do in the world through us, through our church together, that you're going to do by making it true here first. God, please make us truthfully interested being a church that embraces and welcomes and loves all people, that offers two-handedly the gospel to all people, that endures with the infirmities of all people, even if their, their natural cultural infirmities are different from ours, and they tend to be the ones we naturally despise, that we give ourselves a free ride on ours, help us to learn to be multiculturally long-suffering with the differentiation of the infirmities of the people we'll come in contact with. God, help us to care about things we don't care about by praying for and giving our money to the things that we want our hearts tied into. And Father, help us to pour out love towards all who love Jesus with an undying love. That they would know we see them as part of the body of Christ. That they would know we see them as our brothers and sisters and that we would they would know that we stand vigilantly with them in prayer. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.